while you remain standing, if you would, please turn in the scriptures. Hopefully that means, of course, your physical, literal, written words. Acts 17. I know I harp on that, but I'd be thrilled to see a Bible in everybody's hands. Your phones will do until then, but, you know, there's something special about the written word. It's more permanent. It represents just a solidity that we can trust. Acts chapter 17, we will begin reading in verse 16 through the end of the chapter. I will be reading from the NAS, but there's no significant difference between that and the ESV for those of you who are using the Pew Bibles. Verse 16, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, love that, This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as some, as even some of your own prophets or poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Others said, we shall hear you again on this. So Paul went out of their midst. Some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, there is so much here and so little time. I pray that you would help us to use our time well and that you would use this word. Lord, I pray that your word would strike our hearts as it should, where it should, and we leave these things to you, Lord, knowing that sovereignly you use these things to to build us up in the faith. We thank you for this word. I pray that you would help us to treasure it in our hearts more and more. In, in, in realizing that as we know this word, we know you, and what could be greater? In the name of the Father, I pray. Amen. Please be seated. Now, 
I always feel a need to say this. I know I can be long-winded. And many of you know that I teach at the Women's Refuge on a Friday morning. But see, there we have an hour and a half. And that's what it took to get through this section when we did this a couple months ago. So I spent a lot of time this week just trying to shorten it. And thankfully, where's Miss Elizabeth? There's someone here who will time my sermon this morning. So I will get immediate feedback, and I will try to keep it in the parameters. But there is so much here. I trust you'll find good things. Um, World cities. World cities. If you say world cities, I mean, what comes to mind? I mean, obviously, for Americans, we probably say something like New York, Washington, D.C., you know, if in Europe, London, you know, Paris, Rome. If you're in Asia, Hong Kong, Beijing, who knows? Who knows? But this morning we're looking at a, at a world-influencing city that is different than all the others. One, it was never huge. <laughs> One, it was never a world power. Uh, you know, it, but yet, throughout history, if you had to pick one city whose effect went on and on and on and on and on throughout the centuries, throughout the different cultures, certainly throughout Western civilization... What city, far beyond all scope of its actual size and its time in history, what city has most affected us? And it would have to be Athens. It would have to be Athens. I mean, Athens, if you remember from your your grade school, middle school, whatever it is, history classes, is kind of like the king of the cities and civilizations and the effect that it has had and the influence that it's had down through the centuries. You know, in areas of government, Athens was the originator of a democratic form of government, which in practice was actually somewhat republican, which is considered by them a higher level of democracy. In philosophy, of course, anybody that's taken a philosophy class, you'll recognize the big three, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, two of which were home homegrown in the city of Athens, and one, Aristotle adopted it as his hometown. You could go further and look at Hippocrates, the father of medicine. You could name probably half a dozen others, including the ones we see today, the Epicureans and the Stoics, all originating from the city of Athens, and with which I think we will find some, some familiarity with their thinking. If you were to go on, literature, we get theater, we get the Greek tragedies and the dramas. We get this all from Athens. Architecture, who has not seen photos of the Parthenon? You know, it's a beautiful shot. And if you ever want to see a life-size, real-thing replica of it, by the way, there's one in Nashville. The Parthenon is there built in full scale, built back in 1897. It's worth a stop on your way through. So literature, art, architecture, theater. And this culture was adopted by Alexander and later by the Romans and spread throughout, not just the Mediterranean basin, but all the way to India and up into Europe. It has truly affected everything in the ancient world when it comes to Western civilization. And then it was lost. Then it was lost. At the end of the Roman Empire, you know, around 500 or so, give or take, it was lost. The culture no longer had an influence, but it was rediscovered centuries later, which gave rise to the Renaissance. And if you know, following the Renaissance with its emphasis on going back to the original sources, led to the Reformation, which led to the foundations of the entire Western civilization, including the founding of America, truly Athens has had significance and influence far beyond anything it ever actually was in its heyday, which was really brief in the light of of history, maybe 200 years. And yet, and yet, its influence continues. 
So it peaked and fell in about 200 years, but it has an extraordinary legacy. And I find it interesting that the peak of human intellectual achievement, which we still acknowledge today, led to such an extreme idolatry, that, which Paul highlights when he comes into town and, and sees their forms of worship. But this will always be the case for those who reject God. No matter what the height of human achievement and intellect is, when we reject God, it eventually breaks down and leads to idolatry, superstition, uh, or whatever other label you want to use. So what happened? What happened? When Paul arrived, Athens was a fraction of its former self. Still physically impressive. I mean, Paul arrived by sea, we are told, and then he was left alone. But by sea, then he had to walk four or five miles inland, and there were walls on each side that were ancient defensive fortifications until he got to the city. And as he got to the city and found the center and the marketplace and everything, there were also theaters and and public buildings and temples all around, and you could see the Parthenon sitting up there on the Acropolis above city. It would have been physically imposing or impressive, but yet the city had become nothing more then really kind of a provincial university town, and the population had been decimated. What had been a couple hundred thousand people was now down as low as 10,000 people. And yet, as many as 30,000 idols littered the city and took up every nook and cranny. 30,000 idols. So that it was said by one of their own that in Athens it was easier to find a god than a person. And so when Paul arrives here, you would think he'd be kind of looking forward to it. Paul was an educated man. And coming from Tarsus, which was the third university city of the Roman Empire, after Athens and Alexandria, Paul was familiar with much of their writings and teachings. Paul was, Paul was brilliant in some ways. And yet he gets here. Imagine the disappointment. Um, I just, it, it's hard to fathom. Um, as we proceed, for those of you who want some signposts to help set out as we break down the text, um, I did successfully alliterate this this morning which is not always easy, but we're going to look briefly at the setting, the substance, and the solicitation. So the setting for Paul's sermon, the substance of Paul's sermon, and then the solicitation, concluding Paul's sermon. So setting, substance, and solicitation. And the setting takes place in verses 16 through 21, which we will not read again. But here we see Paul's arrival. He's on the second mission journey, missionary journey. He's been traveling for months, but he comes to Athens after having been abused in Philippi. You remember the story where he was in jail overnight and then he forced them to come and bring him out? So he was abused in Philippi and then later he was run out of Thessalonica and Berea and then escorted to Athens where he was left alone. He didn't expect to be there long, wasn't necessarily in part of his planned itinerary for he was headed to Corinth. But having been there, he began to walk through the city and see what was what. And he found himself, in verse 16 says, while he was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols, provoked, provoked within. This word means aroused, stirred up inwardly. It actually has connotations not only of grief, but of anger, of anger. Now think about who Paul is. Paul is a you know, recovering Pharisee, but he was raised on the Ten Commandments. And as a believer, the Ten Commandments still hold sway in our lives. They're still cherished. And so the first couple of commandments, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You shall not make or bow down to any images of anything in heaven or on the earth or below the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. And yet everywhere Paul turned, there's another idol. There's another idol. And this disturbed him. This worked him up. Do we get stirred up? When we see God's name blasphemed or God's word discarded, I don't know that I always do. Sometimes I get a certain righteous indignation, I like to tell myself, or a little bit of intellectual snobbery, but do I get stirred up 
that God's name is being defamed and his, uh, the truth, the truth of God being misrepresented. But Paul was provoked, provoked in such a way that though he was left there alone, he goes immediately to work. Says that he takes his time, uh, teaching in the synagogues and in the marketplace. It stresses that he does this every day. He did not take any days off because he had been provoked. And as he is speaking to those who are present, whether they're just the common person going about his business or the philosophers that used to hang around the marketplace, he gets himself noticed, and he, but they don't understand. He's not well comprehended. And some people insult him. They call him, what is this idle babbler wishing to say? This idle babbler, when taken at its most literally, spoke about a small bird that used to pick the seeds out of the gutters. Okay, this is, the, this is not... This is not complimentary to Paul. Later on, it was known as somebody who would pick up scraps, you know, and maybe make a living from picking up scraps. But in the intellectual sense in Athens, it was somebody who stole ideas from others and maybe from various places and synthesized them to his own in an attempt to present a new teaching and make a name for himself. So they're really looking at Paul as some traveling fraud or charlatan. At least some of them are. So they say, what was this idle babbler wish to say? Some people accuse him then of preaching foreign deities or strange deities, deities they had not heard of before. And so for this purpose, Paul finds himself invited. Invited, It says they took him in verse 19 and brought him to the Areopagus. He, he, one way or the other, he finds himself taken to the Areopagus. The word taken there really does have a connotation potentially of some level of force. This is not necessarily that Paul had the, had the uh, choice in the matter. The Areopagus is both a place and kind of a council, an ancient council of men who, who were responsible for the morals and the intellectual teaching of the city. And so if they saw something they thought could provide for disorder, it was their job to investigate and come up with a judgment. So this actually was not just a casual invitation for Paul, but could have carried with it some, some sort of punishment. Um, this was actually the council who several centuries earlier had condemned Socrates to death for the corruption of the youth in his teaching of new ideas or challenging the existing ideas. So this may have actually held some teeth. Paul may have actually been in some danger. And before we go on to the content of his sermon, we do have to say a word about Epicureans and Stoics. Now, I tried to spend a lot of time reading Epicureans and Stoics, but every time I read philosophy, I find myself struggling a little bit. Because it, much of it does seem senseless. It actually seems made up uh, to me. Which makes sense because these are philosophers who've rejected the existence of the, of the one God overall in the first place. And so much of it does come from our imagination then, does it not? I mean, we really kind of pick and choose and see what makes sense to us. That makes us the final arbiter of what is true. And so that it ends up senseless when we ignore the, the one important existence that brings all of the universe that holds it all together, where else would we expect to end up? So at least I tell myself this so as to not to feel so stupid when reading about Epicureans and Stoics. Let me just sum them up. Epicureans were basically the atheists of the time, or at least practical atheists. They were willing to concede that there might be a God over all creation, but he was unknowable and couldn't be proven. They were willing to, to admit that possibly there were some lesser gods, but that these gods had no influence in the lives of mankind. They simply just took their time to take care of their own pleasures. So they were practical atheists or agnostics. They said that there was no afterlife, which made them materialists, and the whole purpose for living then they were the modern, they were the ancient existentialists because they said the whole purpose for living was to live for pleasure. 
if there is nothing else, then this life is all you've got, so let's go for the gusto, right? Let's just go for it. The more you live, the more you experience, the better life is. And they summed it up in their motto, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So, very empty. You know, it sounds full now, does it not? Because we fill each day with the height of experience, with everything we can grab. But where does it end? There's nothing else. Eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. The Stoics had some similarities, some differences. The Stoics were pantheists, so they said that there was a God, but he was nothing more than a rational solar force, and he was in everything, and everything was him. So a pantheist, the idea that God is in everything, everything is in God, and so he's, he's there, but he's not personal. And because he's not personal, they were also fatalists. They, didn't, they believed they could not necessarily influence anything. They could not influence the outcome of anything. They could not find a purpose for anything because life comes and life goes, and that's the end of it, and they also believed in no afterlife as well. But being very fatalistic... They needed a purpose in life, and so they decided the purpose in life was to live as much as possible in harmony with nature. And so they sent them, they set about to study nature and its ways and to live in accordance with it as best they could, but could not change a thing, could not, uh, just very fatalistic. So their theory, their, their motto, like the Epicureans, was eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. For the Stoics, it would be grin and bear it and do the best you can. Now, if that's all you had to live for, would that be enough? That just amazes me at the foolishness we follow when we reject knowledge of God. Now, that's the setting of the sermon. These are the people Paul is asked to come and speak before, and he has taken to the Areopagus. And in verse 22, we see the beginning of Paul's speech, which goes on to 29. Paul begins, and here I want to read just the first Uh, Part 22 and 23 one more time. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. He says you're very religious. He's willing to acknowledge that. I mean, what else would you call people who live in a city inhabited by more idols than people? You're very religious. He's not being complimentary. He's, you know, in some sense, he's making just a factual observation. But aren't all men religious? All men are religious. I think he's already beginning to build his case here because in Romans 1, where there's a lot of parallels here, God made knowledge of himself evident within us. And what is one of the ways we prove that there is a God or we prove that there's something more than the physical other than what drives us to be religious? And all creatures, all societies, all cultures are all religious in one way or another. And that should point to something greater than just what we see in front of us. And But it makes a great deal of difference what the content of your religion is. We have, again, my congratulations to those who put together the bulletin. Minda, and I'm sure Seth had some input here, because the sermon very much was preached and many of the references were used in our readings. This is wonderful. But what is it? It makes a great deal of difference what the content of religion is and what we worship. If you worship images, you will become like the images. What are images? They're deaf. They're dumb. They're blind. They cannot speak. You will become like that. The scriptures tell us that they, having ears, they could not hear. 
having eyes they could not see. We're talking about spiritual truth here. And so it matters a great deal about the content of your worship. If you worship the images, you'll become deaf and dumb. If you worship something in the form of an animal or nature itself, you'll become more beastly. You will, because it's degrading to mankind as we fill our minds with thoughts of something less than what we were created for. But if you worship the true God, then you will be lifted up. You will be, having been made in his image, you will become more and more like him. You will not become him, don't get me wrong, but you'll become more and more like him. You'll become more and more truly human. You'll be more dignity as we are renewed more and more in the image of God. It makes a great deal of difference what we worship. That we worship is going to happen. Because we've been created as spiritual beings and we have been made to worship the one true God. Make a great deal what we worship. So Paul comes across this. He, he talks to them about being religious and comes across an altar to an unknown God. There is a legend that in the past times in Athens, in the centuries leading up to this point, that in times of plague, there would be sometimes confusion as to which God was responsible for this. And so they would, this is brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> they would take a flock of sheep. This is the height of intellectual of the intellectuals in the Roman world. They would take a flock of sheep and release them in the city, and wherever a sheep laid down, they'd slaughter it there as a sacrifice and put up a monument to an unknown God. Now tell me how foolish that is in this city, which is the height of intellectualism. Now, that may or may not have been true for this statue. Maybe, maybe in somebody's view of worship, they just didn't want to accidentally leave some God out. And so they set up a statue, prove their religious nature, and worship an unknown God. But for whatever reason or whatever source, Paul had come across this, and he uses this confessed ignorance on their part as the starting point for teaching them or for the, the true ton- content of a true God. So Paul's approach here, then, is to point them to general revelation, and then the doctrine of providence, which we will point out here in just a minute. See, when Paul, as he went about his travels, whenever there was a synagogue, he would go there first. And you can notice the difference in his sermons, because when he was speaking to somebody of the same background as him, where would he start? But with Jewish history and the Old Testament scriptures. But yet when Paul went somewhere, he was talking to a group that was not Christian, was not Jewish, did not have a common heritage with him. He would often fall back on the doctrine of general revelation. We see this in another example back in chapter 14 when he's in Lystra, right before they tried to sacrifice to him. And he runs out into the crowd knowing he's full of pagans. And he starts talking about the God who is there, who has not left himself without witness, who takes care of them, who appoints their times and seasons. In some ways, it's parallel to this, just in a much more concise form. So, Paul uses this doctrine of general revelation. Why? Because God has revealed something about himself, and man is accountable for his response to this knowledge. God has testified concerning himself both within man's nature, this religious nature, also a sense of right and wrong, and outside of mankind in the creation, and man is not ignorant of this. They may, it's interesting, he allows them, you claim an ignorance here, but by the end of this, Paul is pointing fingers. There is no ignorance. There is rejection of the knowledge of God. There is no ignorance of the knowledge of God in mankind. There is rejection of the knowledge of God. And this is what ultimately Paul indirectly, at first, accuses them of. In Romans 1, it says that God has made himself known, but what has man done concerning this knowledge is that he has suppressed it. Suppressed it. And that verb is an active verb. This is something that men are doing, and it's an ongoing action. They continue to suppress the knowledge of God that they see. They just refuse 
to acknowledge it. Suppressing is the idea of trying to kind of take a ball and holding it under the water in your swimming pool. You know, depending on the size or the number of the balls, it takes a great deal of effort. And sooner or later, they begin to get away from you anyway. The knowledge of God doesn't just bubble to the surface like that, though. The knowledge of God is all around us in creation, in God's providence over mankind, his control, his governing. So, now we get down to the meat of the substance of his sermon. We've already started it, but in verses 24 then through 29, we have the meat of Paul's sermon. We see God as creator. He declares in verse 24 that the God who made the world and all things in it, God as creator, he is the one and the only. Now, in Paul's mind, he understands, and we've heard it, Genesis 1, in the beginning, what? God. So, before the beginning, what? God. He is the one God. He is the only God. He is the one who is the source of all things that are. And by acknowledging the things that you see, there should be a knowledge point back to somehow it got here. You know, I'm a blue-collar guy. And when I finish a product at work or my guys finish a product at work, I don't go through there and say, nice product, where did that come from? I don't do it. Somebody made it. There was a craftsman involved. There's somebody who made a plan and used materials and went through processes to come out with this thing. God is like that. If we do that in every other area of our life, why, when it comes to the spiritual area of our life, do we see what God has made and say there is no God? It is senseless. It is irrational. So Paul starts with his knowledge. He starts with the gist. He works off that whole premise. The God who made the world. God as creator. He is distinct from it. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. How could he? How could God be less than the things that he made? How could he dwell in temples made by hands? He is the one, the only, the alone, the overall, the distinct from creation, not like the pantheist who believes he's in it, distinct from it, over it. He has made it. And as the owner of it, he has certain privileges of governance and control. He is the Lord over all. The Lord of heaven and earth, Paul says, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now, corresponding to that in verse 25, he is independent. He's independent. He doesn't need his creation. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need people to serve him, to bring offerings. We bring these offerings because it's good for us, because God has told us to. It protects us against covetousness. It's a privilege to give back to God out of what he gives us. Okay, But he doesn't need us. He doesn't need them. He doesn't need their worship. And in fact, the opposite is true. Not only is he independent and does not need, but he is benevolent and involved because he provides. We don't serve him. He takes care of us, gives us life and breath and all things. And then he comes to the creation of man, his special creation. In verse 26, he made from one man. Every nation of mankind. See, his special creation, and, and, and man tends to, it's the only part of his creation that gets so puffed up we think we made ourselves. And really, among the Greeks, and especially among those who lived in Athens or on the plains of Attica in the area, they actually believed that in times past that they spontaneously erupted and emerged from the soil, the Attic soil. And so they actually viewed themselves as something of a master race. They were different than other people. They were better than other people. And they thought they had the proof of it because of their intellect and their influence. But that's it's just not true. Now, it is interesting there, too, that they had a partial truth, did they not? Because from where did God make man? See, there's the memory, even, within the individual or within the culture that there is something greater. 
and yet they redefine it. See how twisted sin is? See what sin makes us believe and makes us what we do? So his special, he made from one man, so they're not special. He made from one man all men, which goes against their pride as a special or a master race. They're not special, and so they're all also equally accountable to God. God made them all. And not only that, he governs them all, whether they will acknowledge or not. This takes us to this doctrine of God's providence. And the idea of God's providence in the shorter catechism, what is God's providence? God's providence is his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions, all of it. Whereas God's sovereignty is his authority as he sits on the throne reigning over all, his providence is his involvement as he day by day, detail by detail, governs all the thoughts and intentions and actions of man. We see this in verse 27, 26, the end of 26, not only did he make man, but he determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. We think we built this ourselves. And God says, I directed it. I have provided for you, given you life and breath and all things. I've even appointed where you're lived and born. You think you're special because you're from where? This is all in the hands of God. This is a doctrine that used to be I think a bigger deal within the church, or at least in our country, that has been somewhat ignored. If you go back and read some of the prayers of the American founding fathers, they often looked and declared faith in almighty providence as much or more than faith in almighty God. To them, it was kind of synonymous. And they looked for what God was doing among them. Far cry from today when our leaders won't mention God in a declaration of prayer, as if prayer by itself is just therapeutic has nothing to do with the object or the person you pray to. Boy, how far have we come? Among people, God accomplishes his purposes. And I, given the next hour, would love to take you through the scriptures and to show you all the details of where God intervenes in the affairs, not just intervenes in the affairs of man, directs them. Just like Joseph said at the end of Genesis, right? You sent me here, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God did that. Just like in the crucifixion and resurrection, he was put to death, Jesus, by the hands of godless men, as you directed. One of my favorite stories that I always come back to here is the death of King Ahab in the Old Testament. I just think, here's an example of God's providence, where God, through the prophets, had declared that Ahab, who was going out to war, would not return. And Ahab, even in his his arrogance, thought, I'll cheat death. And it's not cheating death, it's trying to cheat God. Because God had declared Ahab would not return from the battle. And Ahab, who was going to war also with the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, says, look, I'm going to disguise myself and go into the battle with you, but you wear your kingly robes. And Jehoshaphat, who gets the idiot of the year award, does it, thereby making himself a target for the enemy armies. And they go out to battle. And as it comes to the peak or in the midst of the battle, there's a verse... In 1 Kings 22:34, you can go read chapter 22 later. It's a great story. But here's the death of Ahab. It says that a certain man, a nameless man, a man whose character we never know, a certain man drew his bow at random at, with no purpose. He's in the middle of a battle. It's almost like he wanted to use up the last arrow so he didn't go back having not shot his full allotment. A certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. And the wound was fatal, and he died. That's amazing. Do you see all the human intent there? Do you see the lack of human intent 
in the archer? Do you see the randomness and yet the precision with which God works to accomplish the word he had declared? God's providence over mankind. We see this in Habakkuk. As God said, I'm going to raise up Babylon and I'm going to destroy Babylon once I've used her to accomplish my purposes in judging my people. He says, a hundred years before the man is born that Cyrus will be my servant and will release my people to come back from captivity. And this is not just in ancient times. I, I love looking for, for issues of providence or instances of providence. And I warn you, it's hard to read God's purposes. I'm not saying I understand God's purposes, but instances where I believe this is providential. All things are providential, but just specific instances. In modern times, you know, Abraham Lincoln came to believe that the Civil War was God's judgment upon a nation who had grown arrogant in their success after 80 years from their founding. He said this. Some people don't even know if he was a believer, but he recognized that we have offended God because in, in the light of all his blessing, we think we did this. And he looked at the, and he was, he was puzzled at how the Civil War went on and on and on could not bring it down to a a specific victory. Like at Chancellorsville, they finally had General Lee on the ropes and General Fighting Joe Hooker. Fighting Joe Hooker. Now, where do you think he got that nickname? Fighting Joe Hooker had finally been put in charge of the armies of the North, and when the time came, all he had to do was say, go, and Lee would have been crushed, and that may have ended the war several years early. And when they went to his tent to receive the order, he was sitting there catatonic in a stupor and couldn't open his mouth and talk. Now, I'm sorry, that's God's providence. And Lee escaped and the war continued. And Abraham Lincoln came to believe that strongly in God's providence. But then there's the Titanic. The fool who owned the Titanic said God couldn't sink this ship. Can you imagine? And God sank this ship. You know how long it took God to grow an iceberg? And how slow they move and yet they arrived at the right point at the right time to destroy this ship? And this goes on and on and on as you study History. He is there, and he is not silent. He has made himself known in creation and in providence. And what should be man's response to this? Verse 27, that we would seek God. That's the response we should have to all that God is, all that God has done, all that he has made known. Our response is that we should seek him. But we don't. We don't. And that's not just the Athenians. This is the story of mankind and his rebellion against God. We don't. What should be the response? He should seek. And finding him would not be difficult. It says that they should seek God. If Perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far. He's not far from us. He's here. He's present. He's involved. He's directing all things for his own glory and the good of his people. And the response should be to start by acknowledging and worshiping. And yet that's not what we do. That is not what we do. This brings us, verse 30, solicitation. Setting substance solicitation. Solicitation, I'm just using the first definition of solicitation that I found in the dictionary, to ask or seek earnestly to appeal to someone. This is Paul's appeal to them. Paul never Paul never preaches so much substance without calling somebody to a response. And that's what he's doing here. He is appealing now to his, to his audience to ask, to, to appeal. Paul's appeal to the Athenians. Read verses 30 and 31 with me once again. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. 
because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul's appeal. Number one, repent. The word's very simple. It means a change of mind. You know, we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. God's work in us starts in the mind. He changes our mind. He calls us here to change our mind. Though it says, um, in, my, in my translation, God is now declaring to all men that everywhere should repent. I know in the ESV it says that he's commanding. God commands that all people... That is actually the connotation here. That's, it's, not a, it's not a command or an imperative verb. But the word itself just has that connotation. It's often translated throughout the New Testament, command. He is commanding. He is charging them. He is calling them. He's telling you, here's what the response should be, is repentance. It's not for God to change his mind. It's for you to change yours about him. He calls them to repentance. All men everywhere should change their minds. It says that God has overlooked, or having overlooked the time of ignorance, he is now calling all men to repent. Just because God overlooked times of ignorance, just because God has been patient with you, or with anybody else who has refused to acknowledge him, doesn't mean there's no judgment to come, because we're all born in sin. It's just that God has, for a time, allowed you to go your own way. He had allowed the Athenians to go their own way, the Athens, the Greeks, whoever, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, everybody. He's allowed you, for a time, to go your own way. But now, in his mercy, he is telling you of a day of judgment that has been set or fixed according to his own will, and he is letting you know that there is a way in which you don't have to end up there. He has overlooked the times of ignorance, but now he's calling to repentance, to a change of mind. You don't have to go there. And he does this in his mercy. He's letting you know that there is a day of judgment, that this judgment will be according to righteousness. Face it, if, if, we had all, if the world had just existed in sin for centuries and God never did anything about the sin, would he be righteous? Of course not. All sin will be addressed. Not a single sin is ignored. Not a single sin is wiped away capriciously or without reason. God is going to deal with sin. He's done this by setting a day of judgment. He will not set, let sin go. He will judge in righteousness, and he will do so by a man whom he has appointed to judge the world. And who is this man? Who is this man? Paul doesn't identify him directly here. Uh, he says this is the man whom God has furnished proof of, This man who has been appointed, and God has proven or pointed to this man, identifying him by raising him from the dead. Now, we know who that is. We're we're somewhat Christianized. We understand we're talking about Jesus. Paul doesn't mention Jesus yet here by name. Now, there's a couple of reasons that this could be true. Maybe the sermon's incomplete. Maybe, you know, Luke is only giving us a summary here, and he didn't feel it necessary to include everything, in which case it's not inconsistent with the New Testament because Jesus, when he first appeared, like in Mark chapter 1, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. So that was his call. That's an adequate gospel to those who refuse to repent or who puffed up in pride. First step, repent, change your mind. So there's a consistency there. It could be that Luke was leaving some things out. It could be that Paul got interrupted at this point. Because remember, the Epicureans and the Stoics, for instance, who made up the bulk of this group, at least in this council, didn't believe in an afterlife. And while the Greek ideal in history has some sort of idea of the spirit moving on or a transcribed migration of souls or reincarnation of the spirit somehow, they absolutely rejected 
you know, physical resurrection. And Paul was clearly talking about physical resurrection because he's pointed to a specific man whom God has raised from the dead and whom people witnessed as having been raised from the dead. This was God's proof of the man. So even there is, and there is enough of the gospel present here that some did believe. Some came to faith. So either it's a summary, and Paul said more than this, or this is enough as a starting point. Because down in verse 34, some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a man, a woman named Damaris and others with them. However, how did the bulk of them respond? You know, some begin to sneer. They mocked him. That's the same word as at the day of Pentecost when people were speaking in all the tongues and, and the, the people around were, were mocking them saying, boy, they started drinking early today. Okay, that's, that's the same word. That's how they treated Paul when they heard the resurrection from the dead. I'm like, well, who is this? So they started off with disrespect, and then they totally dismissed him. <laughs> so maybe Paul never got to finish the speech, the sermon. But we get to. We get to. I get to. I have the privilege of declaring to you the man whom God has appointed, the Lord Jesus himself. I want, I want you to turn briefly, and I will keep this quick, to Psalm 2. Because this, this to me is a parallel, almost. We're not going to read the whole thing. We're going to drop down to verse 12 before we read anything. But, you know, this is why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? They're, they're, the kings of the earth, the rulers take counsel, they reject the Lord. They said, we, let's tear apart their fetters and cast their cords from us. This is rebellion of mankind against God. We will choose for ourselves, which is nothing more than the sin in the garden, is it not? God said, don't touch the tree, and they said, we'll do what we want. We know better. Well, they're saying, we're going to tear their fetters apart, cast away their cords from us. We're going to do as we please. And once God gets done laughing at them, which is one of my favorite verses in the scriptures, he laughs at them. And then he speaks and terrifies them just in his speaking, and he talks about the one whom he has appointed as king, the one who he has installed upon his mountain. And then God's elect God's person, God's son comes forward and he speaks and says, God has promised me an inheritance. He said that I will rule over the kingdoms of the world. This is, this is Jesus. Okay, but when we get down to verse 10, we see here's the response. Not, not the response we got back in Athens. Here's the proper response when God reveals something about himself and calls us to repentance. It says, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Think about what you're doing. Think about what you're hearing. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Here's the response. Worship the Lord with reverence. See, that's repentance. That's, that's putting away your pride and your arrogance, and it's humbling yourself before the God who calls and said, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. Some translations say kiss the Son, a showing of respect that he may not become angry with you. See, that's the one appointed to judge. For his wrath may soon be kindled. But here's the key. How blessed, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. God has appointed him to judge. What qualifies him for this appointment? The fact that he first came according to the will of God to give his life as a ransom for sinners. And having humbled himself, therefore God highly exalted him. And so there is a day of judgment to come, but to avoid the day of judgment, blessed are all who seek refuge in him. Turn from your sin and your arrogance. Acknowledge God. Worship him and look to the Son. Look to the man appointed in judgment because he has first come as Savior. And he offers himself to all who will believe. There is salvation free 
in full for those who will take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray that you, by your spirit, would use it to uh, touch people in their minds, in their hearts. Lord, transform and make new, we ask. And for those of us who, whom you have called to yourself, whom you have transformed, Lord, we just say hallelujah. We praise and worship our God and King and the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.